This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Talk Recorded live. That's right, we are live. This is Travis, uh, and welcome to Travis and Vic's Drunken Horror Adventures. Vic is here. What's going on, Vic? What's up, buddy? How you going? Doing well. You know, we're going to go ahead and jump right into things as we talk Ronald Dominique tonight. Uh, the the Bayou, uh, well, I mean, I've heard a few nicknames, but really the Bayou Strangler is the most prevalent that I've heard. And Alex Lambert's here, and she uh, was a huge part of the Bayou Blue documentary, award-winning uh, documentary from what I saw. So, Alex, how's it going? Good. Thank you for having me. Good. Um, you know, uh, we do these serial killer shows usually once a month, and uh, they're always so interesting to me. But, you know, we've done Bundy and we've done Gacy and we've done all the major ones that, you know, or maybe not every single major one, but a lot of the major ones that are obvious to society. But with Ronald Dominique, he just seemed like such an under, even to, you know, to this day, uh, seven years after he got put away, um, he just seemed so under the radar. And, and it's just, uh, and I, I know you can't claim 100% of the credit for this, but, you know, like, what what was the thing that drew you all to uh, do a documentary about him and the area, of course? Um, I think that was actually part of it. Uh, you know, the story just didn't get uh, attention, and he was, a, he, he had a large number of victims, and um, I think David and I were both interested in why Nobody paid attention to the story and wanted to investigate that. At the end of the day, do you think he was able to kind of hide under the veil of Katrina, or was it, you know, more than that? Do you feel like there was, like, an intentional thing going on there where Louisiana was kind of being swept under the rug? I think it was complicated, and that's, and that's kind of what we tried to show in the film was how, how complicated it was. I mean, I think... Um, you know, there were issues of uh, victim advocacy and um, certainly Katrina and other storms that, took, that, you know, were of interest to people and took maybe time away from pursuing him. There's, there's always difficulty in, in any serial killer because he's um, crossing state, you know, jurisdiction lines and... Um, there were there was a kind of perhaps lack of interest in um, the type of victim in you know caring about the type of victim that he was killing and that was of interest to us and disappointing um, in you know human nature I guess. Yeah, can you can you talk a little bit about the types? Of, I mean, you threw it out there the types of victims that he was killing, and you know, of course, I know because I did my research. For, but for people who are tuning in, don't know a lot about Ronald Dominey. Can you talk about, you know, the type of victims and why that they they might be the type that maybe weren't getting the type of sympathy that they deserved? Um, sure. Well, Ronald Dominey raped and killed 
23 men, and um, and I think you know certainly they were all individuals, and they didn't they weren't all exactly alike, but a number of them were on the streets. A number of them had substance abuse issues. Um, more than half of them were black, and I think that uh, the combination of poverty, drugs, race, uh, homosexuality, uh, not all of them were gay, but some of them were, um, were things that made them, that made people feel a combination of this, this might not be me, and therefore I don't have to care about this, and also that into people's prejudices that, well, I don't care about these people, so I'm not going to pay attention to this story. You know, hey, one everyone, of the... it's, it's David. I made it. David, I'm glad you're here. I'm, I'm so sorry. My flight was delayed. I'm in a taxi cab in New York City, but I wanted to try to call in on time. And um, so I'm here. David's here. Good job, buddy. All right. Well, David, uh, Alex was just talking about, you know, the types of victims that Ronald Dominique picked out. But let's let's kind of rewind again. Uh, I was talking to Alex off the air, and I, I was kind of probing her as to, you know, she's in L.A., you're in, you just flew to New York. Uh, what was it that kind of uh, piqued you all's interest? And she gave her perspective on it. But uh, can you kind of uh, share what got you all into the subject of Ronald Dominique? Sure. So I am actually originally from Birmingham, Alabama, but have lived in New York off and on for about 20 years. But I have a lot of, a lot of dear friends, including one of my best friends who lives in, um, in New Orleans. And so I've spent a lot of time in New Orleans. And I was struck uh, just reading, sort of read about this case, like just one or two articles about these bodies that kept popping up in southeastern Louisiana around Homa, and and I was struck that they were men. And uh, and parallel to this, these murders, there was a a killer in Baton Rouge, a serial killer who was uh, preying on you know LSU coeds basically, and and horribly and tragically so. And that that case got a as you would imagine, an enormous amount of attention. And um, I was particularly struck uh, with the Dominique case. Of course, we didn't know it was Dominique at the time, but that he was, you know, these these were men. And um, and that um, there was a sort of, uh, and, and, and just not, not very much interest in the case. Um, and I, I suspected that there was something at play in terms of, race issues, class issues, and, and um, some homophobia play in, um, in these murders. And, uh, and then once Dominique, in fact, was arrested, uh, and I saw sort of what his MO was, and again, how there was um, just not a lot of uh, attention paid, I was particularly struck by it. Um, and as a Southerner and as a gay man from the South, I thought, you know, I about that too. And, uh, and, then I, and then I told Alex about it, and Alex with her, you know, amazing history of, of so much work around crime and these subjects. She she agreed to come on board with me, which was such a godsend for me, and we made the film. That's it. So I guess I'm going to ask Alex for a little bit of background on her, her crime history there. Alex, can you uh, just kind of talk about what your background was before doing this documentary, Bayou Blue? Um, I made a documentary uh, in the Russian prison system, and um, and then I published two books, one about the murders of Russian journalists and one that's called Crime. It's a collection of interviews about crime and criminal behavior from different perspectives. And I think, you know, David and I met when I was working on a play. I was developing from those 
kinds of interviews, and so I was in the midst of of um, working on a script about crime, and so he knew he knew what I was working on. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, to uh, I guess kind of get back into uh, you know the documentary and the Ronald Dominique thing. Something Alex had brought up, and and I'm sure that this is something that David's probably more familiar with, being around that area. Um, is the the different parishes in Louisiana and how it's almost like different states and where you're trying to um, coordinate an investigation. How was that with putting a documentary together? Did you get resistance from different parishes, or or how did that work? Hmm. I, I, maybe we can both answer that. I, I you know I think certainly the investigation itself that that was very problematic because they they frankly just didn't know there was a serial killer at loose because he was dumping the bodies and committing the murders in Orleans Parish and in Jefferson Parish and then in Terrebonne Parish. Um, and I think in one of the one or two more parishes they found bodies. So there, so it wasn't until several years into the killing spree that they, you know, officially declare that, yes, there is a serial killer on the loose. In terms of our experience, uh, we, you know, we worked most closely with Don and Dennis, who sort of give you the tour of the murder sites in the film. And Dennis is with Jefferson Parish, and Don is with um, Terrebonne Parish, both with the sheriff's office. And uh, I, they were great, and they I think had a you know had a very they admired each other and respected each other and liked each other a lot as detectives. And we're on and we're on this multi-parish task force and multi-agency task force. So no, I wouldn't say it was a problem. I, you know, I, I feel like Orleans we couldn't get much out of, but um, but once we got these two, I, I wouldn't say that was that was such an issue. I think after the crimes, it was much easier to get everybody to work together. Maybe that wasn't before. That was my experience. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I, I agree with that. I mean, we it, it was probably just certainly difficult for them, but but for, they were very helpful to us. So we didn't yeah. have a problem with that. Um, uh, along the lines of something we had talked about before, I had always said that, you know, for as many people as he, as many victims as he had, he, he's so not well known. And of course we talked about some of the reasons why, was there any pushback when you guys were doing this documentary as far as people just kind of not wanting it to get out? Um, hmm. I mean, we had a tough time finding people, uh, but. I you don't say think- Alex, I'm sorry. We had a tough time finding some of the people, but that was not a pushback. I didn't. I don't think that anyone was saying we shouldn't tell the story. Yeah, no, I, I would say I, I didn't think so. I we didn't get okay. I think just the opposite in some ways. I think the families that we did talk to were very anxious to tell their stories and to tell their experience. I think that the um, and I think the law enforcement was pretty anxious to tell the story as well. Prior okay. to. We tried to talk to his family, which they refused to do it, and understandably so. We obviously, you know, wrote to Dominique prison and, and never heard a word from him. And within the sort of gay community in Homa, um, where he met, like, there was a, a bar there that he used to go to. And, you know, we went there to try to talk, and that we were pretty much shut out of. They were like, nope, not interested, don't want to have anything to do with this. So I would say that was really the only area where we encountered but, this, but none of them, I don't, I don't feel like any of them were telling us not to make the film. They just didn't want to participate in it. Yeah, yeah, me too. Not, yeah, I didn't feel like anybody would think don't do this at all. Um, but they just didn't want to do it, yeah. yeah so. I got you. Okay, so, you know, 
the the ultimate question for a lot of these serial killers. And again, I, I mix Ronald Dominique in with some of the worst of the worst. I mean, look at the, the amount of people that he you know murdered, and and again, people still don't talk about him. But um, you know, everybody always wants to know what made him kill, what made him kill. And the thing that I've gathered from all the research that I've tried to do is that you know he had a compulsion to rape and he wanted to get away with it. But that's really all I could ever come up with. Um, I, I'm sure it, you know, it goes along with uh, being picked on for being a homosexual in that area, those things. But what did you all come across in your research as to, I don't know, I guess the motives for his crimes? It's not something you see every day regardless of what's going on in someone's life. Right. I, we, we really didn't have that much information on Dominique or access to him, so I, I feel like we steered the film in the direction of, of being a portrait of the area and the victims' families and what the experience was there because I don't I don't I don't think either one of us wanted to kind of make an, a, a guess at situations. There just wasn't enough to go on. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, Alex is right. We didn't, you know, we didn't have any sort of psychological workup of Dominique. Um, all we had was his words from the tape when he which I think were very typical of like, it's like when you see that last Bundy interview where he tries to blame all his murders on pornography, you know, it's like mm-hmm. this like really reductive sort of thing where he's like, I was bullied and I was angry. Um, but there was, but you know, I'm sure it's a much richer and more complicated story than that. And, and frankly, we just don't have the information to speculate even, um, you know, now, of course, you all never got to uh, actually talk to Ronald Dominique, but if you had, if you could sit in a room with him, can I get both of your, your uh, kind of perspectives and what types of questions you would ask him? I always like to ask the, the writers and people like this, and usually it, it's uh, after somebody's already passed away or been executed, of course, Ronald Dominique's going to be in prison for a long time, but if you ever did or would have that opportunity, what would you ask him? I'm, I'm pretty quiet when I interview people. I find that people will talk a lot if you don't ask him much of anything. Um, I don't know, David, what would you want to ask him? Yeah, I mean, I I will say, like, in the making of this film, um, I've found that one or two questions that are just simple uh, and and even open-ended, you get, you know, you get so much more information. So I simply would probably just honestly say, so tell me about your life. And and tell me... um, you know, some of your experiences and, and that sort of might get into, I mean, what I would want to know, of course, what, I, what I would want to know, of course, is like, why? But then in some way, that's still like such a reductive question. And it's, I mean, it's so terrifying and mysterious that I don't know if you could ever get a satisfying answer. So in, in a way, more what I would hope to do is just ask him very general questions and through that hope that he would reveal himself and maybe in ways that he wasn't even aware of that he was revealing himself. Um, so yeah. like Alex says, it's just really just asking a few questions and then getting the ball rolling, let's say. And then uh, for for people in different parts of the country that maybe, I mean, you know, obviously saw it on the news, saw things like that, and, and you know, knew how important it was at the time and how big of a deal it was. But can you talk about how a story like this, just a story like this, I mean, one that, that uh, should have garnered a lot more attention was kind of, um, hiding under the veil of Katrina that, of course, took precedence in the area at the time. Yeah, sure. Sure. Alex, thoughts? Uh, 
I mean, we were talking about this, David, right before you got on the phone. I don't know. I mean, certainly Katrina was, was something that, but that was a six-month, I mean, I, I, this was going on for years before Katrina. So I think it was a more complicated um, issue of the entire area and what it was experiencing as something that the rest of the country does not want to pay attention to. And I think Robert is very articulate about that in the film because um, he was covering this story before Katrina happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's it. I think that, I mean, they do, they do reference sort of Katrina fatigue and Louisiana fatigue and, and perhaps sort of because this took place in southeastern Louisiana, there was a little, you know, it just seemed like another sort of horrible story from South Louisiana, right? Um, but yeah, before those hurricanes, uh, Rita, you know, as well, it was, um, it, it is what I believe it was Robert said, is that, is that people, they, it just was not a sexy story, you know, in, in a gross way. It was not, these were not people that normally we pay too much attention to. Um, and and that, that feels crass to say that, and it's horribly sad. And, but I, for me, I think that's sort of the conclusion that I drew. Um, and, and to me, I think one of the the most, the thing that elucidates that the most is when Robert in the film tells the story about the New York Times passing on the story. Um, because it's a quote, it's a quote, regional story, whatever that even means. Uh, and, you know, the New York Times, it's, you know, it's the New York Times, it's a paper of integrity, and even they, like, passed on the story, so I don't know. So last week we actually talked to a guy, uh, Kevin S. or Kevin M. Sullivan, who who wrote a great book about Ted Bundy, and uh, he I asked him if he knew of Ronald Dominique because I mean, like we said throughout, a lot of people don't know who he is. It's amazing to me how many people don't know who he is, and he did. He knew right off the bat. He said, in fact, you know. Um, I had thrown that out to my publisher to see if that would be something they'd be interested in, and I'm kind of mad to this day that they told me no. So along the lines of your New York Times story, he also was told no. So, I mean, that whole regional thing or whatever it is, I, I just don't get it because to me, and, and David, maybe you can maybe you can give some opinions on this. Like, wasn't John Wayne Gacy a regional thing, and wasn't that almost a parallel to this story? I mean, other than they were, the, you know, white white people that were getting killed, that's the huge that's difference a, that's that I found. Got, that's the, yeah, I mean, that's that's the, the huge big difference. difference in this country. I mean, look at who gets paid attention to. I think that's a big difference. Yeah. I do too. I mean, I mean, John Wayne Gacy was, you know, first he had the creepy clown thing going on, which is mm-hmm. telling. And, you know, he and he was killing pretty young white men, generally. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer was killing white men and was a cannibal. You know, there were these sort of it wasn't just it was the victims, and whereas you know Ronald was killing for the most part homeless African American drug addicts, and not even drug, not I, I mean some, but a lot, you know, or uh, you know they just I think Alex is right. It's it's sad, but I think that's it, you know. Yeah, and in a way, it's kind of like I don't know how many people have heard of Robert Hansen. I know I know doors have been open recently with some of the uh, with the movie with John Cusack, Frozen Ground, uh, that came out with Nicolas Cage, and that was right. you know he, he was a serial killer in Alaska that was killing prostitutes, and it was kind of the same deal. I mean, obviously not on the same level, but where it's a a, a part of society that people don't care about, and it, it's it, it's sad that I have to say that, but that's kind of the the same impression I get there. Yeah. But people don't care about it, and they kind of willfully don't want to look at it because then you're culpable, and you have to 
you have to, you know, you have to care about it or admit, have some opinion about it. So I think people really try and not try and put blinders on. Yeah. Without having to name any names, um, was there anybody when you were doing uh, the documentary, uh, you know, in, in Louisiana that you talked to that actually was very frank about it? And it was like, we didn't care. It's just like, I mean, who cares about a bunch of homeless guys or whatever the case may be? Did anybody just completely come out and say it to you? Yes. Um, yes. One one guy, I won't, I won't name him, but we had one, we had one night where we were working with um, some, I would say, not the wonderful law enforcement people you see in the film, but, but some other people. And the sort of phrase that was mentioned was, you know, killing, killing the right people. Um, and it was all off the record and off camera, but, um, yeah, we did. And that was, that was pretty awful. <laughs> it was pretty terrible here. David, I guess I got to ask you this too. Did, did, did they know you were gay when they were, you know, talking to you and they said things like this? Um, you know, I think that it's funny. Like, I think the sexuality, from that standpoint, the sexuality of the victims was um, not necessarily what they were talking about. Okay, the race. I, um, I think it was more of the race and the, and the class. And I think class is something that is very easy to overlook in this situation as well. And it's something that in this country, you know, that we sort of don't talk about very much. Um, I, what do you think, Alex? But in terms of, I have no idea. I, I, I don't think, think they did. I don't know, think I, they knew. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I you know, I'm certainly am not remotely closeted in any way, but um, I, I tried to be as neutral as possible and, and such, you know, didn't talk about my personal life with anyone while I was making the film, except for Alex. <laughs> um, and um, and uh, so, you know, I don't know. But I do think it was important for me to be to be as, uh, as sort of vague in a way while making the film as I could be. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys have any regrets about things that, you know, that you didn't get to do in filming uh, that, you know, if you were ever like maybe do a follow up or even write a book or something like that, that you, you didn't get to talk about, didn't get to discuss. And aside from just not getting to talk to Ronald Dominic, which I don't know if that was ever your goal in the first place, uh, just anything that you wish you had done. Well, I don't think, well, for me, there's, it's not something I wish we had done. There's always things that you leave out for, reasons if I mean I think there's stuff that we didn't put in the film for uh ethical reasons or moral reasons but um that would have made the story more interesting perhaps but um but I don't regret that decision. I think it's the right decision to make. Yeah. I mean the only thing even talking to Dominique the only thing I wish that we we almost and worked pretty hard to talk to his two of his sisters. And they were going to be on, and they were about to do it, and then they understandably just didn't want to, and and were you know they have children, they're in the community, and um, and but I think that that would have provided an interesting. I would love to talk, actually, really talk to them, and not not so much to figure out what because um, there's a part of me that doesn't really care. Do you know what I mean? That's like he, mm-hmm. he's. What's more interesting to me is is the impact that he had on the community. And I think that's sort of what, you know, our film is about. And, and to be able to bring in these, these sisters who I think were, you know, just normal people and how, see how they were impacted as well might've been an interesting addendum to the film, maybe even a different film entirely. I don't know. But that's the only thing I wish that had come through. Um, yeah. 
can you expound on that, the, the impact on the community and the impact on the sisters? Well, I don't know the sister. I mean, I don't, I can't, oh, for the sisters, because really we just, we kind of talk to them, and but they never mm-hmm. sort of explained it, so I can't really expand on that. I just know that they were sad and shaken up horribly. And, um, the community is complicated because, you know, to some, to some part of that community it had absolutely no impact. Um, and, and to others it ruined, you know, it has broken many people's hearts and ruined many people's lives. Um, and I think those are the people that you see when, that we you know, talk to these families of the victims. Uh, Alex, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess, um, it depends on, yeah, how you're using the word community. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, Octavia lost five people that she was related to, so it's quite a yeah. huge impact on the circle of people who were who were directly affected. If you're if you're talking about people who are not claiming all of these victims as part of their community, then that's then that's the, the flip side, which is a very ugly um, thing to see. Yeah. Can you talk about how long it actually took to do the documentary? Because a lot of times these things are, are long processes. Sometimes they're short. So this is extremely speedy for me, <laughs> David. It was it was fast. Yeah, we did it fast. So we shot we shot days, um, and we cut it and we cut it really fast. We cut it in like eight weeks, something like that, right, Alex? Yeah, maybe not consecutively, um, but, but yeah. So we, so yeah, it was, it was, this one was quick. This did not just take too long. Um, but what, part of the reason for that is because of how helpful, honestly, how helpful the, our friend Dawn, who was the, who was part of the task force with Sheriff Florence, she was, and Dennis, like they just, they really, really helped us immensely and were very generous with their time and information and sources, honestly. Um, yeah, both in terms of. Yeah, the the victims and and the materials. The get like getting those. Once we got those tapes, which was and it was Alex's idea to sort of use his confession tapes as a as a guide through the film. And I think it's incredibly effective and creepy. Uh, we kind of knew okay, we had a structure that came from that. And and once we had that, we kind of knew the direction to go with the editing, so we could do it pretty quickly. I ask this a lot uh, in our serial killer, uh, you know, series specials that we do. And I always have to ask when you get so deeply involved in a situation like this or a story like this. I mean, I know you know that Ronald Dominique's locked up and things like that. But, you know, your subconscious does play tricks on you. Did you ever have any sleepless nights, have any times where it really affected you, like, deeply emotionally? Should I go Um, first, Alex? Yeah, you go first. (laughs) Okay, so... Yeah, for me, yes. Um, I'm one of my favorite stories about making this film is um, we uh, we were looking at crime scene photos, and we were with the local Homo City cops, and they um, warned Alex. Uh, they said, "Don't look at these. You know, these are very upsetting." And I was like, "I'm fine." But they didn't say a word to me. They just kind of shoved them in my face. So Alex is, you know. Alex is looking at the photos and sort of, uh, sorry, I'm paying my, <laughs> my bill. Um, and um, uh, so they're, um, and they warn, they warn her, don't say a word to me and kind of shove them in my face. So like Alex is like looking and compelled and, she, and I'm sort of leaning against the wall trying not to faint. Um, so for me, it was much, like, it was tough. Um, 
Like, and I would get, like, I would definitely get, like, the creeps, uh, sort of when we would go to these night shoot places. And um, I was just, yeah, I was just, I'm just, I think I was more. Hello? Yeah, we're still here. Okay. Yeah, I think I was just more a little, uh, maybe Alex. I just think Alex is tougher than I am, that's all. I don't think I'm tougher. I just, I'm just more accustomed to it because I've, I've seen uh, photos like that before and David has. So, uh, yeah. I think it was just um, funny that they, that they was a, a assumption always that, that the woman should be forewarned and poor David was like, I've never seen this stuff. <laughs> but, but the thing is, I mean, it was very clear. That was the other thing. It was very clear and what sort of makes Dawn's, I think, uh, being in film more amazing is it was very clear that there was this idea that because Alex was a woman, she was, you know, a little bit not as quite equipped to deal with the material. I think that was pretty pervasive down there as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is, is that a Southern thing or is that a chauvinist male thing, Alex? I do not. I think it's Alex, both. I think it's both, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's both. I mean, I, it's not like I don't encounter it in the out of the film. I encounter it everywhere. Yeah. But, I mean, I think it was exaggerated. Or, or you know, so it's a different form of it. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, let me spin this back real quick because I wanted to get into something else. When when you wrapped up actually filming the documentary, can you talk about how long it, it took to, you know, get it out and start, uh, you know, distributing it, going to whatever film festivals or, or conventions you got to go to? That also was, we got pretty lucky. It was pretty quick. We, we submitted it to um, ITSA and it was accepted competition. So that was, I don't know, David, what was the timeline on that? It was quite soon after. I mean, we we were. I mean, by the time we had a cut, we were accepted into the uh, festival in Amsterdam very, very quickly. Um, before we had even finished, I think some of the like sound stuff and and some of the like final color correction. And once that happened, then it opened a lot of doors for us, just because it's a big festival, a big business festival. Um, so it was quick. But then, like you know, you make it, and then it comes out, and then it you know. I think it can take years and years for an audience to really build. And I think our film is also unique in that it's not a sensationalistic, you know, serial killer movie. It's it's quiet and meditative. And um, so I think it defies people's expectations in some ways. And um, and I imagine, you know, some people don't like that. And I think a lot of people do like that. So I think it you know, just takes time to really find and build the audience. Yeah, I think it's not, it's not your... Typical serial killer film, and so it takes a while for it to find its target audience. Yeah, I'm assuming your goal, whenever you, you know, you of course you did the documentary, was to uh, kind of shed some light on all these things. And do you feel like you've been able to accomplish that? Uh, you know, I, I realize you probably want to work on getting it on a bigger scale to any point, whatever point. Um, but you know, do you feel like you've accomplished that to some point? Um, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, I'm proud of the film we made and we should keep trying to make sure people see it, see how they respond to it. Yeah, that's the way I told too. I'm I'm very proud of the movie. I think that it's very, um, I think it's very reverent uh, to the victims of the crime and to their families. And I think that generally when you see 
you know, the, the end of the film, I think, is extremely powerful when you see all of the victims uh, and just the sheer, the sheer numbers of them. And you hear Dominique sort of explaining, you know, that he's sorry he did it. Um, to me, that is, um, in some way, that is just a, a real elegy for those people. And, and, it, and they're not numbers anymore. They're humans. And, uh, and I think that that is sort of, in some way, that maybe have, would have been our goal for the film. So hopefully people will see it. We'll do as much as we can. But in terms of the, the piece itself, yes, I definitely feel like we accomplished, uh, you know, what we wanted to. Yeah. So on the subject of, uh, you know, people like Ron, Ronald Dominic, serial killers, things like that. I mean, I think all of us have some sort of inherent interest in it, even if it's a repulsion towards the mm-hmm. subject itself. I mean, it, it's one. It's kind of like a bad car wreck. It's hard to look away. You're just fascinated it by it by human nature has there been any subjects like this and i know alex has done you know similar things but david i'll ask you first that that you know uh moving forward that you'd like to get into that you haven't yet i don't know you know one of the things that is is interesting to me is like so i i you know i'm 44 years old and my and i grew up in Birmingham. i remember very clearly uh, uh are you guys there I'm still here. Okay. It sounds like a didgeridoo. It's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, um, it sounded to me like a uh, somebody skiing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I um, – so I remember very, as, a, as a little kid when the Atlanta child murders were going on, um, and it had a real impact. My mom's from Atlanta, so we would always – we would be in Atlanta a lot, and, and that had a real impact on me just in terms of fear and – um, and so the whole sort of 70s, 80s, which I, f- I feel like if we have to use this term, uh, would be sort of in some ways like the golden age of the serial killer. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, because that's when, you know, Bundy and Son of Sam and Zodiac Killer and all these, like, in the Atlanta Child Murder, and, you know, sort of like this, people got really obsessed with it. Um, so in some ways, like, that was an impactful time for me in terms of, I think, why I wanted to make this film, I guess. Um, but frankly, I, I don't know that I want to explore this kind of territory again. Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm I, and in general, I would say I'm also much more interested in the victims than the killer themselves. Um, and whether that be victims of any kind of violent crime, um, or even family members. Like, I've, I've often thought it would be very interesting to make a film about you know, Ronald Dominique's parents, or I don't know if you remember, do you guys remember that case in Scotland where that guy goes in to um, that kindergarten and just shot him? Yeah. Scott, like his parents seemed like perfectly normal, lovely people, right? I mean, who knows, but, and how, what that experience is where you have your progeny or a family member does something so unbelievably horrific and how you live with that. Like, I guess that in that arena would be sort of what I'd be next be interested in. Yeah. Yeah. And Alex, for you, of course, you've been through the subject through and through now a little bit. But uh, is there anybody that you've, you know, maybe maybe you uh, need to hook up with a couple people to get it done? But are are there any particular subjects or people out there that you said, you know, this is really a a person that I'd like to kind of profile in one of these documentaries, kind of like Bayou Blue, uh, maybe in the same vein or a different one even? 
Well, I'm working on a film now that's about a, a filmmaker named John Townell who was um, who was murdered in 1973, and um, so yeah, so I'm kind of deep into looking at somebody's life and working with his daughter. I do hope when that comes out, you let us know. That way, we can uh, get you on to talk about that. Because uh, you know, like I said, once a month we we love to get into these real life horrors. Even though you know, they're, they're, I'm telling you, like, and I know you all probably know this better than anybody because I asked if it affected you all. But like, you know, for a straight month, I'll do research on these guys, and even I will be uh, affected by it. Not to the point where I'm waking up at night or anything like that, but where I'm like in an Arby's and I start seeing people that look like Gacy. I mean, that's seriously <laughs> the way it goes. Yeah, that's a rough experience. So you're at an Arby's and you see people going down way. I'm like, that guy looks like Gacy. Like, and I can't help it. That's what my mind goes to, right? You know, when I'm, when I'm doing that type of research, because, you know, I'm trying to get together everything I can so I can ask the right questions. But yeah. Well, I'll tell you and, this. And, I'll tell you a personal experience. So I and I, I think I told you this, Alex. But I had a few recurring dreams while we were in Louisiana in Homa, and um, it was not the um, it was not Dominique. It was the victims. I kept having these dreams that the victims were like ghosts in my hotel room, and were standing <laughs> over my bed. And, the, and yeah, sort we, of, we, we, I, I will say we stayed in some pretty creepy hotels, David. Yeah, yeah, we did. I mean, it felt just like. It, it felt like a place where, you know, serial killings would happen. Um, and that haunted me. And even today, like, I was actually just down in um, Tuscaloosa this weekend at the tragically sad Alabama football game. And But I, we, I was sort of driving back in the country, and I see, like, these men walking by themselves. Um, and I think I would immediately think that's somebody that Ronald Dominic would go after, you know. Um, so that sort of still is at play in my mind. Yeah, it just it it really does affect you like that. Um, but as far as um, I, I'll ask, I'll bite, I'll go ahead and ask. Did you guys go any on any ghost tours while you were down there, or was it all business? It was pretty much all business. Yeah, no, we didn't know ghost. I like ghost tours, but we didn't know ghost tours in Hama. Hama creeped me out though, for real. <laughs> well, we didn't exactly go there looking for the nice side of it. We didn't. We did not see beautiful Homa, Louisiana. And what's fun, what's funny too is that Homa, Homa was more foreign to me. Yeah, I'm I'm from Birmingham, and Homa was much more foreign to me than New York City was when I first moved. Like it is, it is really different. I mean, it's places are extraordinarily beautiful, and all the bayou, and, and the, it's it's just very foreign. It was very foreign to me. Um, it was interesting. Can you all talk a little bit more about that, the, the locations that you went to? And, and just uh, for people that have I've never been to Louisiana at all, I don't think. Maybe I've passed through at some point, but never enough to uh, really get any kind of feel for Louisiana. So can you talk about, you know, what the areas were like that you were actually in and, and not just stayed in, but some of the areas where you were, you know, traveling through, uh, walking the streets of? I mean, I'm from the East Coast, so, you know, it's pretty fun to, um, I just, um, I mean, it's bayous, you know, it's people living on bayous, and um, temperature's different, and the air is different, and the, um, and the lifestyle is different, lower pace to everything. Um, there was lots of mosquitoes when we shot at night. 
I don't like that. Yeah, there are, there are lots of bugs. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's tricky because you don't also want to be like, you know, we were there for a limited amount of time and we didn't have a, a widespread opinion about the area. I mean, I think you'd have to be there for a very long time to, to really sort of suss out and get. But, you know, in the limited experience that we had, um, I mean, New Orleans is New Orleans, and New Orleans is, you know, beautiful and decadent and dangerous in ways, and, um, and, I, and I actually love New Orleans. Um, down the bayou, it's very, it's very Cajun. So even like, the, and it's, it's in a thick accent that is at times hard to understand. Um, you know, one of the women in the film has a very, very thick um Occasion accent. What I was struck by, I think more than anything, was the poverty. To be honest, like um, the sort of hopeless poverty of these particular areas in Homa. And Homa also has a very wealthy side. They have a lot of oil money down there. Um, and of course, the, it's segregated both by class and by race. The town. Um, but I was really struck by the poverty and, and how extreme it was and how ingrained it was and just how hopeless it seems to me um, in a way that I'm not sure I quite experienced here in the United States before. But that also is based on my limited experience. Yeah, I think I think that's something that people forget about is that there's there are places in this country still that, that have, you know, absolute poverty and, you know, people talk about Detroit, but, you know, I think maybe Louisiana's been forgotten uh, now that Katrina's behind us, or at least, you know, uh, the major parts of Katrina are behind us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, New York City has, you know, plenty of neighborhoods that are... Uh, Yeah. I don't think it's... Yeah, I don't think it's unique to Louisiana. I think, uh, to me, just having spent my whole life in a more in a city, you know, more urban setting, you know, you're out in, um, yeah. often we were out in nature at night, which is a totally different experience than being in a city that's full of light. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Alex talked about what she's up to these days. David, can you kind of talk about what you're working on right now? Well, I just so after after um, Bayou Blue, I made a film called Skanks, which is very different uh, about a community theater in Birmingham, my hometown, doing an original drag musical, and it is uh, much more lighthearted, I would say, than um, Skanks. It has a serious side, but it's a, I mean, then Bayou Blue has a serious side, but it's a more lighthearted film. Uh, and then I was about to start working on another project, which has just fallen through. So I'm just writing and sort of stewing over some things and thinking about what's next, but I'm not sure yet. I will let you know. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Um, as far as Bayou Blue goes, if you wanted to kind of sell this to people who maybe who are tuning in uh, just to hear about Ronald Dominique and, and hadn't never heard of the film uh, or whatever the case may be, if you wanted to sell this to them, um, if you all could kind of uh, summarize, uh, and I know we've talked about it throughout the show, but summarize why you know they should watch this documentary, why they should pick it up you know, what type of impact it'll have on them, more than likely. Oh, David, you do that. Oh, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think if you want to see a film that in no way sensationalizes somebody who doesn't deserve to be sensationalized, but instead is a reverent examination of poverty and crime and race uh, in the South and how that plays out 
in a very, very heartbreaking and depressing way, then you should see the movie. Um, it is very sad. I mean, it is very, very sad. So you need to be prepared for that. It is not titillating. Uh, listening to his tapes does have a certain sort of voyeuristic horror, I think, listening to his voice. Um, but what the movie is really about is how one man's actions broke hundreds of people's hearts. But I also feel like he's a bit of a metaphor for the whole, yeah. the whole, a product of metaphuma, you know, I mean, me, you as like a, a personification of a broader and complicated uh, despair in that part of the world. Not to say yeah. it doesn't exist anywhere else, but that he personified it there. Yes. Well, we threw it up on our website, but while we've got you two online, can you throw up the uh, or can you uh, throw out the social media, the website, all those good things for people to be able to find the film and all the things that they need to know to get it? Sure, you can get it on iTunes, you can get it on Amazon, and it is available on Amazon Prime. Um, so if you're a member of Amazon Prime, you can watch it. Um, and uh, the website is BayouBlueFilm.com, and there's a Facebook page for the film uh, and a Twitter as well. Um, so if you follow it on Facebook, any updates will be on there. Um, yes. There you go. Do you guys have any other plugs, any other thoughts you want to get out there? Because honestly, I really enjoyed the time. I thought you guys were awesome. And uh, I really appreciate it, especially since you were on the go uh, during the show. Oh, no, we, we appreciate well, it. So, um, yeah, so we appreciate thankful. it a lot. Yeah, so thankful for you um, to give the time to it. Um, well, yeah, like, I, you know, I said, a lot of times uh, we'll talk, well, once or twice we've talked to people that sensationalize things, but for the most part, we just want to talk to people who are interested in a subject we we are from whatever perspective they're coming from. And I really like you guys' perspective. I thought it was um, kind of an artistic expression of what was going on down there, and I thought that was what set it apart from the other things I've seen in the past. Yeah. That's nice. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you again, guys. Alex and, and David, we'll have to talk down that line. Alex, let us know when your new one's done, okay? Definitely will. And David, good luck to you, buddy. You take care, okay? Thank you so much. Have a good evening. All right, everybody. Okay, Bye-bye. good night. Good night. And that was Alex Lambert and David David McNan, excuse me, uh, who did Bayou Blue. And, of course, that was about Ronald Dominique. If you all have not watched this, go do it. It's on Amazon Prime, like they said. I mean, hell, you, I think you can get get on YouTube and even buy it on there. I'm pretty sure that's what I did originally. Um, but yeah, you can you can purchase it. It's only like three bucks to to watch it. I mean, do it. I mean, you guys need to educate yourself on, on this guy because everybody knows Gacy, everybody knows Bundy, everybody knows these guys. But why is it that somebody like him can kill 20 plus people and nobody knows who the hell he is? How ridiculous is that, Vic? I think it's pretty crazy, man. Cause... Like, whenever I first looked him up, because I was doing our poll, our original poll, and he was right underneath Gacy and Bundy with body count, and I've never heard of the guy. Like, I just found it odd. And Ronald Dominique, man, um, you know, they were very candid in what they said there uh, is that, I mean, the reason why it was swept under the rug is because he was killing – he was killing – Black guys. He was killing poor black guys. I mean, it's as simple as that. He was killing homeless black guys. And while there was a homosexual aspect to it, that was but a small part of why uh, nobody gave a shit. 
you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it was a mixture of all things that people don't care about. They don't, people just hate gay, they hate black, and they hate poor and homeless. You know what I'm saying? It was just the mixture of everything. And by the way, he has at least uh, 23 confirmed kills, according to Wikipedia. So I'm sure there's more. Yeah, Alex said 23. Um, so check this out. Like, uh, I... I I, you know, I've always wanted to talk about this, so I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about it. All right, so, you know, racism is a problem in our country. Um, homophobia is a problem in our country. But I think greater than both of those things is there's some sort of a social issue about classes. I feel like people that are, are poor are discriminated far worse than a black person, a white person, uh, whatever color person, a, a gay person, any of those things. Walk into a store and look poor, and you look a hell of a lot worse than any black person, any Mexican, any whatever the hell you want to try to say is being discriminated against. You may not dis- you may not agree, you may not disagree. Like, what do you think, Vic? I, I think, um, like for the most part, you're correct. The only the only difference or the only thing is that you know, it, you can have two poor you can have a poor person discriminate against another poor person because they're white or black. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yes, I would agree with that. If you put a black poor person and a white poor person in a store, most people, you know, a lot of white people are going to look at the black poor person. You are right about that, you know? Yes, sir. And, I mean, but, you know, the rich, the rich always look down on the poor no matter what color they are. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, I mean, there's just a big, uh, you know, dividing class, like you like you said. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know, Ronald Dominique, while he doesn't have the rich story going around yet, see, because this is still a relatively new story. I mean, 2008 when he was put away. It's only seven years ago. Nobody's wrote a big book about him. I feel like we're kind of on the precipice of this. I think people are going to start digging uh, as time goes on and start realizing what type of a person he was. Think about how long it took for H.H. Holmes to become notorious. I mean, truly notorious. And honestly, Vic, how many people in this country could we ask about Carl Pantram and H.H. Holmes? And they won't know who the hell they are. So sometimes people don't ever reach that level of a Bundy or a Gacy. Yeah, I mean, like, I can bring up a Carl Pantram to somebody, and 99% of the people don't know who I'm talking about. Like, only, like, real true, you know, true serial killer fans really know these types of people. I mean, like you said, everybody knows a Bundy, a Dahmer, a Gacy. No. Uh, he, a lot of people know Ridgeway, but I mean, other than that, man, people just don't know uh, H.H. Holmes, uh, Carl Panzerum, and the Ronald Dominiques, and I mean, all these other people, they just don't know them. And that's what we're here for. We're here to bring them to the forefront. Thank God for Travis and Vic's drunken horror adventures. What can I say? I mean, we just continue to talk about people who are obscure, but also the popular, too. And speaking of, uh, it's a great transition because on October 26th, we're going to be talking about one of three, okay, real-life monsters. No, I'm not talking about Loch Ness. No, I'm not talking about Bigfoot. No, I'm not talking about whatever the hell else you'd come up with, Jersey Devil, Mothman, uh, you name it. But I'm talking about three people who existed in history who were real-life monsters, and they kind of go outside of our normal serial killer talks, but... For the month of October, I think it's appropriate, considering it's five days before Halloween. And so the choices are Elizabeth Bathory, you know, the blood countess. Uh, she bathes in the blood of virgins. 
I mean, that's all I need to tell you. She's in many ways considered the first vampire. Um, there is Jack the Ripper. Don't really need to say much about him. He was gutting prostitutes. That tells you how much I drank, Vic. Uh, And then, of course, there's uh, uh, Vlad the Impaler, also considered the basis for all vampire movies and stories that came after him. So you can vote for one of the three. We have passed our vote, of course. But on October 26th, we will talk about one of them. October 3rd is actually, uh, I believe, the last day to vote, so... Better get your asses in gear. Trav and Vic, horror.wordpress.com. And when I say Trav and Vic, I say Trav, the letter in, Vic, V-I-C, horror.wordpress.com. Yeah, I mean, me and uh, the blood council, we we got a lot in common. We both bathed in the blood of virgins. You know, Vic, uh, I wanted to get something in real quick just in case Johnny was really good and we don't have a lot of time to talk. Uh, uh I feel like I really need to talk about what's grinding my gears this week. Do you want to, do you want to hear it? Of course, of course. I think you I think you'll probably agree with me even though it's probably not grinding your gears. We probably haven't gotten annoyed as I have about it, but I have decided who the worst fan base of any slasher is. Oh shit. Um okay, so I told you Texas Chainsaw Massacre has a great fan base. Friday 13th, not as good as theirs, but still pretty decent. Look how many groups there are on Facebook. And I mean this is no slight to my uh, intelligent friends out there who like Nightmare on Elm Street, but uh, some of my friends who like Nightmare on Elm Street who cannot get past the fact that Robert England is not going to be Freddy anymore, I, I don't understand you people. Like, I, I don't know if it's Freddy fans or Nightmare fans, but you guys are the worst horror fans I've ever met in my entire life. Awful. You lack any kind of common sense. You just cannot get past Robert England. I love Robert England. He is Freddy. He will always be Freddy, but he's 69 years old. You can't tell me Bela Lugosi needs to play Dracula after he's dead, okay? It's just not <laughs> how it works. All right? Somebody has to pick up the mantle as Freddy, or you're just never going to get a Freddy film again, which to me is unacceptable. You need to get more Freddy films because I love slashers being turned out, okay? And the answer to that. Vic, you you signed the petition. I saw it. I went and signed the petition as soon as I saw you did it. That's Kevin Roach. That is the next Freddy. That is Freddy going forward as far as I'm concerned. I agree 100,055,600% because if you haven't seen The Confession of Fred Krueger yet, go watch it. It was directed by our good buddy Nathan Thomas Milliner. Um... It, it it's a, it's only thirty minutes, so it's not like you're taking a lot of time out of your life to go watch it. And it's, it's on good. YouTube. It's on YouTube. Yeah. It's free. Mm-hmm. It's not going to cost you any money. It's thirty minutes out of your time. Go watch it on your lunch break or something, and thank me later. Um, Kevin Rogues knocks it out of the park as Freddy. He, I mean, no, when you watch, you're not going to get Robert England, but you don't need Robert England to play Freddy. That's what's so great about it. Like. It is man. This is the dude that needs to be Freddy in the new remake, the reboot. I don't know what it is that's coming out, or is this even coming out? But whatever it is, Kevin Rhodes needs to be the guy. And to all you people that say if it ain't Robert England, it ain't shit. Well, fuck you, because Robert England is not in shape, and he is not. He is old, man. He cannot do all the Freddy stunts anymore. By the time the new one is even filmed, he'll be 70, 71 years old. 
And he's already said he's not doing it again. So why even? I mean, do you not want another film? If that's the case, then you can fuck straight the fuck off. Dude, it's ridiculous. Like, I mean, Friday the 13th fans aren't this bad about Kane Hodder. We've dropped the subject. I mean, you know, he's too old now to play Jason, let's be honest. I mean, maybe barely too old, but he's too old to play Jason. It's done. It's over with. We don't need him. I want Derek Mears to come back as Jason, for sure. But, you know, you don't see, you know, Chainsaw fans begging for Gunnar Hansen to come back. He's old. What is, the, you know, like, I just don't get it. Like, why are Nightmare on Elm Street fans so obsessed? I mean, I, I get it that Robert England's the man. I totally get it. I really do. But at the end of the day, you have to accept that, move on, that he is 69 years old, and we need a new Freddy. Or you don't get any more Nightmare movies. And that pisses me off, personally, because if you're going to be that stubborn, then you're not a real horror fan. You're like a, a Robert England fan. Yep, I agree. And we actually have a uh, a call from uh, Pennsylvania. Are you on the line? I am. Is this Johnny? This is Johnny. What's going on, buddy? It's good to talk to you this week. How's uh, life treating you? Well, life is treating me pretty well, thanks. I'm sorry about last weekend. It's all right. I will tell you, it kind of worked out great. Kevin M. Sullivan was probably the best guest we uh, ever had. So, I mean, you got heavy shoes to fill there, but that's okay. Um, because you are kind of an expert on a subject that I really enjoy. Whenever we're plugging shows and uh, – I always have to uh, go to the serial killer quotes because, to me, those are the things that really draw people in. Bundy was really quotable. Carl Pandram was damn sure quotable. Um, and there were some others here and there, obviously, that were very quotable. But um, you know all about serial killer quotes. So can you kind of introduce yourself and talk about, you know, your knowledge and, and the things that you do? Sure. I'm Johnny Trevisani, and I have a book called Serial Killer Quote of the Day. And... Basically, you're going to have, you know, some bios. I have a, I have it sectioned out by months because it's meant to be sort of like a page-a-day calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you have like a featured serial killer per month, and then you have little fun facts associated with each quote. Well, maybe not even each quote, but each, each serial killer. So, uh, you know, you're going to have a serial killer quote, you know, like, you know, Jeff Bundy's, Jeff Bundy's um, quote, uh, my refrigerator broke and the, and the meat spoiled, you know. It's like, that's a real meaty, no pun intended, but that's a real meaty uh, quote. And because because of the the, the raw nature of, of where it came from, where Dom, Dahmer told his neighbors that uh, when they were complaining about the stench that was coming from his, from his, uh, from his apartment, you know, and can you just imagine that's that's what that's what that's actually what drew me into to studying and and cataloging and collecting um serial killer quotes you know well, really okay so uh, yeah i guess i'll go ahead and and ask because i always do you know like so you just came across that or, or when was your or do you even remember when was your initial fascination with like serial killers in general it was well i, I think it you know, serial killers in general, in the in the common lexicon of 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 pretty much of our society, it's been there forever. I mean, how many times have they made Jack the Ripper, and and they made movies over the years about Jack the Ripper and various killers. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, 
you know, Ed Gein has been portrayed in so many different ways, you know, throughout the movies forever. I mean, so, but with me with quotes, what I thought was kind of really interesting was the fact that it was that quote that sort of drew me in and I went, wow, that's, that's really, really, really meaty. And, and, and then I just started to research more. And unfortunately what I find was as you start researching, they're not alive. You know, most of the good quotes uh, are of people who are not alive. So I have to research things in like, you know, police reports and, and, various like police rep- police interviews, all these types of records you have to try to find. And, and it's amazing to, to get into the, into the, the psyche and into the brain of what they think. Um, I, I, you know, I found it really, really intriguing. And I think that serial killers, serial killers in general, um, especially even with, with, with popularity of like, um, popularity of like movies like um, you know Jesus, just, there's just so many movies out there um, but uh, yeah, I think that the lexicon of America really does they, 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 you know you, you, you could be sitting behind a serial killer in the grocery store and you wouldn't know it you know people like um, uh, um, yeah, BTK killer you know he was a guy that worked forever in his community. He was a deacon in his church, but you would never have known this. He looks like a normal dude. And what he does at night is he goes out and, and he, and he strength and he, and he kills and murders, um, you know, prostitutes. I mean, it's, it's a really weird thing. And then the, the way that they rationalize it in their head, and the quotes that come out are really, really very interesting. Have you ever, uh, well, I'm going to ask. Uh, have you ever had the opportunity to correspond with any of the serial killers that are currently incarcerated anywhere? I've tried, and I haven't been able to uh, actively communicate with them. Okay. I was just curious because a lot of people are, like, heavy into that, so I didn't know if that was something that you had uh, actively tried to do because a lot of people, they get art from them and things like that. I've never tried, and I'm not even sure where to begin. Right. Well, you do know that, like, um, Berkowitz, you know, David Berkowitz is, he's a born-again Christian now, and he has a, he has a website. Um, he's, he doesn't respond, but he um, puts out a lot of new material. <laughs> um, uh, it, it isn't really very, very quotable, but it is kind of interesting that he's incarcerated, and He's the son of Sam, but he's born again, and now he has a website. I find that kind of odd that they would allow them to have a allow, allow him to have a website, but the content that comes out of the website is all about you know being born again, so it's not really controversial. But mm-hmm. you know, you know, yeah, I wondered if if he would have had one like some sort of <laughs> like some hardcore crazy site out there if they would have allowed that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what I found, some of the quotes, um, you know, you mentioned Carl Panzram. Carl Panzram, boy, that's a guy that you could tell by walking down the street. Yeah, you just you you needed to run away from him because you can just 
tell that that person was a was a person that was I, I can't I try to describe Carl Pranzrim as as a person that was just a person that hated humans and he 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 took too much joy in in pleasure and in how he described owning the victims you know he he would describe them as a um one a person that he didn't want to just he he wanted to demoralize demoralize them and there's a uh but someone like ed Ga- uh, uh, ed kemper who was um a rather mild-mannered very quiet unassuming guy who happened to be six nine three hundred pounds but he was he was just unassuming and friendly with the police that that when he actually um when he was actually captured he confessed you know ed kemper confessed after he killed his mother but the police didn't actually believe him because they thought they knew ed and they said oh he's just playing a joke on him you know i mean that's just that, that's the kind of just the, the freakiness of it. You know, you're not really sure what's going to happen because these people could be in your grocery store and you would really not know it. And and that's really intriguing to see what the psychology of it. And you get it from the from the quotes. That you know, the, I I went through a lot of different quotes. And a lot of them, most of the most of the, the people are dead. Um, a couple of them are, are still alive. Ed Kemper's still alive. Uh, you know, so. It's just a pretty interesting, you know, um, interesting, um, interesting look into the brain of a psycho of a of a, of a sociopath and a psych and a, a, psych, a psychopath. Yeah. Um, have you done a account as to who has the most quotes in the book, or, or who has you know like what the total is for each person? Um, well. I tried to even it out. I mean, because some of them were just really cool. I, mean, I had lots of Bundy quotes. Bundy mm-hmm. was a quote machine. Um, and so I didn't want to make it um, too, you know, I wanted to go back to people like, you know, Helene Jagego, who, who, who was a, somebody that was like back in France, back in the 1800s. She actually had quotes and, 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 you know, her quote was, where I go, people died. Yeah, well, because she was a nurse and she would kill people. I mean, but you would never really know that. And so you can sort of learn a little bit as you go along. Um, whereas Bundy was just filled with quotes because he was interviewed all the time. You know, he was a, he was a very photogenic guy. He was smart. He was intelligent. He worked for the he, – he worked for uh, uh, the um, – the governor of Washington during his reelection, and he he was head of communications, or he was head of communications, but he worked for communications department. Um, he was a quotable guy, and he had some really really good quotes. So there's a lot of quotes in there from him. There's a lot of quotes in there from H. H. Holmes. There's a lot of quotes in there from from um, from John Wayne Gacy, you know. But some people like. Richard Ramirez, who you think is a is a quotable guy, I, I was going to highlight him on a on a on a um, on a you know for a month, but honestly, I didn't 
feel that his his background was really very intriguing. He was just like a a guy that sort of just found Satan and decided to start killing people, and it was very different than other serial killers. <clears throat> you know, he had Richard Ramirez had had you know he was a thief. He was a little. He was a you know just a just kind of a, like a thug and a thief. But then he, when he went into hard prison, he became a Satanist, and then came out of came out of prison prison and then uh started killing people um for satan so it really wasn't very compelling this story whereas when you contrast it with like ed kemper who is you know kind of disturbed um where he would you know kill and cut people's heads off and you know have sex with their head and you know and there's just a lot of really bad stuff that goes on. You think, well, that's more compelling of a of a of a story than than Richard Ramirez just tracking down someone down and saying, you know, you know, I want to be in Disneyland. <clears throat> but you know, so quotable. Ted Ten Bundy had some of some of the best quotes, um, but there were still some. I like going back and researching some of the old old ones. Like Albert Fish, you know, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with Albert Fish, um, boy, he was a uh, he was a serial killer that um, he was he would actually have his children beat his bare bare rear um, with sticks and rods. Um, until flesh, until bloody, and that's what he he would do. And um, he his children weren't killed, but he would kill he would kill other children. And one of his quotes in the book is, "I love children; they're tasty." So it's it's that kind of like that kind of little twist on on things that just make you your your blood curl a little bit. That these are actual people. This is what they said. This is this is how they thought. It's a really, really kind of freaky way of looking inside the the brain of them. Yeah. So uh, forgive me for for asking it this way, but Vic and I always say, you know, like, well, I, I like H. H. Holmes. He likes Bundy, and of course, we're we're talking yeah. from the perspective of interest, not so much like I want to hang it. Well, maybe I do, but you know, <laughs> I, I don't like what they did. Obviously it's just more one of those things where we're just fascinated by them. But, but for you, do you have, and again, I say it in quotes, but you get where I'm saying a, a favorite of the bunch. Yeah. I get that question all the time. And it's, I, I, I know your answer. It's, it's very difficult. You, you don't really have a favorite, but I, I'm, I'm most intrigued with Ed Kemper. Right. You know, Ed Kemper, had an IQ of 140, 139, 140 around there. Um, he was six foot nine, 300 pounds, but he was quiet and unassuming. And here was a guy that that his his background story was he hated his mother, and he wanted to kill his mother, but in his mind he was very very meticulous, so he practiced. On other women and other kids and other other people to kill them in a certain way and, and to rape them in a certain way. So as when he finally made it to his mother, he did it the way he actually wanted it. 
And so that's what exactly what he did. He was, he was, he was Santa Cruz. He lived in Santa Cruz, California, and he was the Santa Cruz killer, and he was the co-ed killer, which is his nickname. And he would, um, you know, kidnap them, and he would kill them, and then he would dismember them, and he would have have necrophiliac uh, ne- necrophiliac sex with them. Um, but he was he was basically all just practicing because until he killed his mother, he wasn't actually going to he wasn't finished he wasn't satisfied. And one of the interesting tidbits with and that's actually one of the fun facts in the book is that um, he was also you know he, he killed his grandparents first um, uh, when he was young, and so he went into a mental institution instead of going into jail, and so. When he was released from from the mental institution, he had to go on regular visits to a panel of psychiatrists, and he killed one woman, uh, one girl, some some hitchhiker, and had her body in the trunk. When he went to make the appointment to his psychiatrists, you know, because he was very prudent, you know, he 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 was very punctual. He wanted to make his appointment. And so he still had the body in the, in the trunk, but you know, at least he made his his his, his appointment to the to the psychiatrist. I mean, it was that kind of like really, really bizarre stuff that made Ed Kemper really very unique to me. And my understanding is, and I and, I, and I've wrote letters to him. He hasn't responded. I would love to to communicate with him. He's still alive. He's still in the general uh, population in, in California. So, so what do you say to a guy like that? I mean, if you were to write to him and, and kind of have a correspondence, what types of things would you ask them? Well, my my first thought is there's the the first kill, but with serial killers, there's a second kill. And so I want to know about how it felt after the first kill. Because, you know, look, just, you know, throughout the United States, there's a lot of murders, and they're one-time murders. They're, they're most of them, you know, his, statistically, it's going to be more domestic violence. You're going to, you know, husband kills wife, wife kills husband type of thing. There isn't a second killing. But with serial killers, there's always a second kill. And that meant that they got something from the first kill. And so I'd be really, really intrigued to, to understand the thought process, what they were seeking, what did they get out of the first kill, what did they did not get out of the, the first kill, what made them go for a second kill? You know, that that would be my line of questioning. Interesting. I, I like that because, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like I always – I would love to do it, but I'm not sure what I would ask because – that's interesting to go with there. Um, and, of course, you know, to uh, swing it back to the subject of the night, have you been able to get any kind of quotes on uh, or, you know, from Ronald Dominique that were uh, substantial? Because, like, I've listened to the things he said, and he just seemed like he was so erratic that there wasn't anything substantial coming from him. Yeah, I have not. Um, I'm I'm assuming that there has there's a lot more somewhere. I just haven't mm-hmm. been able to find anything yet. I mean, gotcha. he is a yeah. very interesting. He he is a all over the map, isn't he? I mean, 
Yeah. He is. He reminded us a lot of Gacy. You know, when we were talking to uh, Alex and David about that. You know, about how he is a lot like Gacy. But then, you know, they're like the the one big difference though is that he was killing a lot of black males, and that was why it was kind of swept under the rug down there, or at least ignored. Uh, almost completely poor black males at that. You know, like impoverished black males. So uh, and that kind of separated him. Then I compared him to Robert Hansen, you know, the Alaskan serial killer, the butcher baker who was killing uh, prostitutes. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting, like, that they all kind of have, for the most part, an MO that they stick with. It's not usually, you know, all across the board. Right. Well, you know, there are some, and I, and I there are some, like, um, common characteristics you can you can see some of them gravitate toward necrophilia mm-hmm. um some of them are cannibalistic um you know it is interesting to see which ones are and which ones are not i mean the ones you know gacy you know you mentioned gacy gacy was a Boy, man, he he was an up and comer. He wasn't. He was a he was a, um he was a well respected person in his community, and then he raped. He, he was up for he was raping a you know a a kid a child, and um then basically all you know, the onions were was peeled off of you know they started peeling back the onions. They find out well he really wasn't that person. Um, he was just a guy that just sort of was unfortunate from his perspective. It was, it was bad timing, you know, because he was a closeted homosexual, and and his his wife actually sort of condoned his his homosexuality and accepted it for a little bit, um, but uh, he I guess he hated himself for that the same way that Jeffrey Dahmer did. What you know, you mentioned AJ Holmes earlier as being one of your friend or one of your uh, more and I use the term lightly favorite mm-hmm. Holmes is really just a he was a capitalist if you if you really break it down to it he was a capitalist oh yeah he, it was all for financial gain yeah I mean he found that he he found a niche right I mean if we want to joke about something but he found a niche he, he said ah I'm gonna sell body parts I need bodies for it you know and he and, it, and he created this elaborate home and this hotel to to make this factory for body parts. I mean, man, you got to give the guy credit for his vision. <laughs> uh, it's sick. It's sick. And they're coming out with a movie, you know, about that, which is going to be pretty interesting. Let me just say that did help our listening, our, our listeners for our H.H. Uh, Holmes episode. We actually, the first serial killer episode we did was H.H. H. Holmes back in February and yeah. kind of taken off since then. It's amazing to me, um, the serial killer culture, uh, cheap plug there for John Borowski's film, that has taken off in our country, and not just in our country too. Like there is a fascination with serial killers that is, so much stronger than anything we ever talk in horror. And it's it's really fascinating to me. What is it about this dark dark subject that really gets people, uh, I guess well, you can talk from your perspective and the perspectives you've seen otherwise, that gets people so interested and fascinated in the subject? Well, it's because they're your neighbors. I mean, because they live in their communities and they're relatively unassuming. 
Like someone like Dennis Rader, right? The BTK killer. He was a dude that just he he was a he was a father. He was a deacon in his church. He did all the right things, you, you know, like in a suburban world. And then he at night that was his hobby, you know, or that was his obsession or his fetish of some sort. That you know, that's the scary part of it. You know, mass murderers just flip. You know, a mass murderer is just going to go. They're going to the spree killers are going to kill. You know, that that that's that's different. You know, than a serial killer because a serial killer can go for a long time. You know, Dennis Rader went for a long time, decades before getting caught, and he only got caught because he wanted to get caught. You know, he he got away with it pretty much, but he wanted to get caught, and he was a guy that was. He looked normal. It, he he was a he was he installed security systems in people's homes. That's what he did for a living for like seventeen years. I mean, it's that kind of weird thing that your your neighbors could be that person, and that's what makes I think serial killers kind of scary because they have a they have a theme. They have um, they have a little method to it, and they're going to try to continue to perfect it as they go along. Um, you know, Carl Panzram said, you know, he was he wanted to be killed. You know, one of my one of the famous famous uh, one of the fun facts in the book. I guess maybe I'm giving away all the fun facts, but one of the fun facts in the book about Carl Panzram was that he used um, the gun from. William Taft, President William Taft's gun to kill 10 people. He stole his gun and killed 10 people with him. <laughs> I had actually heard that somewhere before, too. We didn't bring it up on the show, but I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> I mean, it's it's an interesting little, like, wow, that's a really interesting thing. It was because he was the Secretary of War for when he, he was sentenced to Leavenworth when he was, uh, you know, William Taft was was the Secretary of War during World War One, when uh, Carl Panzerim was was sent to Leavenworth, you know. So I guess he just waited. He waited his time. He's going to do it. He's going to use his gun. I mean, that's that, that's a very interesting little tidbit. I think. I, you know. <laughs> so since we're back on the Panzerim subject, I always felt like he was the most quotable serial killer, at least. The, the most powerful quotes, but then Bundy fights him out for a close shot at number one. You talked about how many times Bundy's in there because he had so many interviews. If you had to right. say, and just, you know, this is all opinion, obviously, who's the most quotable serial killer that you've uh, come across in your research? Well, it's got, it has to be Bundy. Um, because while it was, he was more prolific, right? Obviously, it was more interviews, more talks. He was he would talk to anyone, but he was also very cerebral. You know, he his quotes were you really really got inside the mind of it. There wasn't he was he was more sociopathic. He he was very clear. He was very clear uh, headed when he would talk. You know. You're saying, you know, I am the entertainment. Like he understood his role and in his mind, and uh, it was it became a real. It, it it gave a separate level of of oddness to it and an eeriness to it. And so for me, Bundy 
as much as I wouldn't want it to be Bundy, I would like to be somebody a little bit more obscure. Bundy was to me the most quotable because it, from a psychological perspective, it really went into the psyche, his psyche. And really all he was doing was killing his first girlfriend, right? Like <laughs> most of the gr- people that he killed resembled his first girlfriend. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's the the profile there. But it, it's so interesting too, though, because like, he waffled on that with so many different people he'd talk to. Like some people he'd say, no, it's just attractive girls or no, it's just this, but it seemed obvious, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, if you could, you know, and I always ask people what they would ask people if they were able to sit down in a room with them. But I guess I'll ask this. If you were able to sit down in a room with any of these guys, um, uh, which one would you uh, choose to uh, have a conversation with? As long as they're restrained, of course. Yeah. Uh, I would still go back to Ed Kemper, um, although H.H. H. Holmes, um, to me, or Albert Fish, Albert Fish was somebody that I don't know if you would think that he might be able to have a conversation with, but he was just so so horrific. Um, Carl Panzram, of course, is just too scary. He, you know, did you read his his book? Did you read um, Carl Panzerone's book? It was pretty pretty amazing. Um, yep, yep. And and we actually talked to um, the a couple of the people that collaborated on the uh, the Panzerone documentary that John Borowski did, and one of them was Joel <laughs> Goodman, who worked in the prison systems and actually got the interview. Uh, God, now I can't remember his name, but the prison guard who uh, you know assisted with that. That he befriended, yeah. 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 It, yeah. I mean, so it's. It's interesting because there are ones that are just, I don't know. You asked me who I would want to talk to. I would want to talk to Ed Kemper and and try to contact him. And I would like to try to arrange the time to go out and talk to him. But that's who I would think I would want to talk to. So kind of spin. well, I guess I'm curious about this for anybody who writes a serial killer book. And I asked uh, Kevin M. Sullivan this last week, but I'm going to ask you too. Um, w- whenever we brought up the topic of Bundy, we had people pretty pissed off at us for whatever reason. I, I guess it touches too close to home because people still remember it, or I- I'm not sure what it is. But uh, and you did a serial killer quote book, which I got to assume probably touched on some nerves of certain people. Can you share some of the negative feedback you've received? Well, it hasn't really given too much network uh, negative feedback. I mean, there's the common, well, I hope that you give the profits from the book to the victims of the families, um, and it, and it's, or the exploitation of it. And I'm, and I don't really think it's an exploitation book. I think it's really more of a psychological book. I mean, there are so many books about written about serial killers. There are so many films. You know, Silence of the Lambs won Academy Awards. Um, it, it's 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 kind of unfair to just pick out one person and say, oh, well, you're profiting from this, or no one's really profiting from anything. Everybody, I mean, it's more informational. I mean, uh, this is something that's it. It was a it was a project for me, and. And it, and it became a project that I, I became interested in because it delved into the psyche of a serial killer. And I don't think that that's I'm – I'm not delving into the, the method for which they 
they murdered or I'm not trying to glorify anything. I'm trying to just, these are what they said. And I find that being pure more so than um, impure. Do you, do you find that a little bit um, when people talk about, oh, well, you're just doing this, it's messed up that you're doing it for the profit and whatever else, do you, do you find that kind of hypocritical? Because if you were writing a book about the Holocaust, I don't feel like you'd get that type of feedback. Yeah, I've said this to other people. I've said, well, look, I don't have to be a baseball player to write about baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so because there were, there was friends of mine and other people I've met, they said, oh, you read it, you, oh, you read a book on serial killers? And then they give me that face and they go, oh, well, should I be worried? You know, and I say, no, I'm not a, you know, like people write baseball player books and they're not baseball players. There's a lot of people that write, you know, you're just, you're just cataloging something. You're researching it, cataloging it, and you're making sure that what you're doing is accurate. And um, that's really all I'm trying to do. And I found it interesting. And I, some of the things that are really interesting, the, the sideline aspect of this is that, you know, when I first wrote the book many, many, many years ago, and I pitched it to um, uh, to publishers that would take unsolicited material, and I pitched it to um, to agents. They all just walked away from it. They said, no, this is too controversial. They didn't want it. I said, I understood that, and I, and I respected that. And then when Strawberry Books contacted me earlier, earlier in 2015, they said they wanted to do it. I said, great. And I was all on it. And But what I found was, because they had asked me, I said, well, I can tell you the little bit of bit, uh, background on it is that you know during the years I've written I've written an Android app called the Serial Killer Quote of the Day. I've written a an iPhone app called the Serial Killer Quote of the Day. I've cataloged all these data. I, I have a database of all these quotes and such. So I just keep on refilling and and and. But the thing is, is that you know twenty. I think it's around right now. It's I think it's like twenty three thousand people have downloaded the the Android app. And and uh, I just launched the the iPhone app earlier this year, and I think around a thousand people have downloaded that. I mean, it's it's not an uncommon thing. It's it's people are kind of intrigued by it. So I'm not the only person that's trying to, you know, do it. I think that this is a it's a it's a it's a topic. I think that hits certain chords with people, and and they're intrigued by it. But one of the f- unbelievable facts out about this is this, is that I get demographic information from from people who download the app, and I get demographic information from the Facebook page, which now has almost 3,000 likes, right? And mm-hmm. so one would think, if you're just going to be putting this out there and you say, okay, well, oh, it's going to be a bunch of, you know, 20-something you know, guys, they're all going to be into it, right? No, 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 wrong. 55% of the women have downloaded the app and 45% of men have downloaded the app. And the numbers translate to being exactly the same on Facebook likes. So what does that say? The 55% of our women are more intrigued by, you know, that they're at, that the demographic is really a very amazing, I, I thought. 
you know? If if you go into serial killer groups and things like that, I'd say that's accurate. I mean, if yeah. you look at the serial killer groups on Facebook, the people that are talking about them on the daily, and, and trust me, I track these things, watch these things just the same as you do, absolutely accurate. Hell, I'm surprised it's not higher for women um, because – Bar none, I've met very few women that I've spoken to about the subject that aren't at least somewhat intrigued by, uh, you know, serial killers. So. Yep. Yeah. It's. Um, Yeah. I I was just shocked by it. I I didn't. You know, you just sort of have. When I put it out there, I didn't even think about it, and then I come back with the results and said, "What really? Fifty-five percent?" And it was. It's consistent. Consistent against iPhone or you know, know, iOS. And Android and Facebook, it's consistent. And and the demographics of the the book that's being sold on Amazon, you know, it's consistent. Yeah, 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 definitely for sure. And um, uh, okay, so let's talk about a little bit of the, the good feedback. Have you gotten some, you know, people that have said good things about the book? Talk about some of the pluses of the book that people have shared with you. So we might as well sell the thing right now. Right. Well, it's it, I've gotten a lot of. Well, here's one here's one positive one one little anecdote. So, someone had bought the book. Um, he came up to me and said, "You know, I bought your book." And I said, "Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much." And he says, "You know, I I, started, I got up to you know April when I was you know I just couldn't put it down. I read it for like a weekend and and then and then my son took it. I said, "Oh, really?" He goes, "Yeah, my son. He's like 15 years old." I said, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah, he took it and then he just read it straight through." all for the rest of the weekend and then and then he ended up buying another book on serial killers because he wanted to learn more about these serial killers and i said i said well one thank you again for buying my book two i'm sorry that now your son is now intrigued by serial killers (laughs) you know but i i find that intriguing that that you know this is somebody that just it it struck a chord with him like because it is an interesting thing it's a quick read it's something that you can go through pretty quickly and just pick up and put down. And everyone that I've, I've spoken to that have read, have read it and, and have given me compliments off of it have all said they just couldn't put it down. That they would, you know, they put it down for a second and then pick it back up again and, would, and start reading again because it's kind of, wow, you know, it, it, some of it's just rather shocking and then they and find it very, very intriguing. So have you done any other works on this subject, or is this uh, pretty much it? Uh, this is it right now. Um, we're going to be doing something in the future, um, another little takeoff of this. Yeah. Very good, very good. And, you know, that's the type of thing that people love anyway. So um, if uh, have you thought about it at any point doing maybe a, an entire book on one serial killer or is that something that you're just, you know, people have done it before and you don't really want to go down that path? Well, people have done it before, but what I'm really, I'm work, I have a treatment that I'm working on that is along the lines as, um, along the lines of, of, of understanding. And I want, this is why I want to interview actual, um, serial killers and, and try to research some other ones. It's tough to find um, live serial killers that mm-hmm. are willing to talk um, that are sort of intriguing, right? And I, wanna, I want to examine the first kill 
and and I that's that's my next project that I'm working on right now is is identifying the first kill and understanding what makes them go for their second kill. What made that first kill so important enough that they would actually do it again? I think that's an interesting take on it too, because you know um, I always find it interesting what took what got them to that first one, and then if there's no regret from it, and there's some sort of a thrill from it, what is it you know that right. makes them continue on? So I think I think that's really interesting. So okay, so Johnny, you were the man. You came on here and you shared a hell of a lot of great. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. You got any quotes that you want to throw out to us, just to uh, kind of um, I don't know, wet the palate? Well, like I said, my the the um, there's a there's a few quotes that I that I uh, appreciate, like um, like there's a, there's a quote from Ed Kemper. He says, "One second she's animated, the next second she's not. Just a noise and an absolute absolute stillness." I mean. That was him explaining it in a very calm, intelligent manner. Um, that was from Ed Kemper. You know, there's there's ones from that are more gruesome, but I don't know if I I don't know if I like the gruesome quotes. I, I sort of like the more cerebral ones, and and um, uh. There's like things like um, from Charles Starkweather, who is obviously copied uh, in multiple films. He said, the world is lifeless anyhow, like the people I killed. I mean, if you just think about that in, in its blank statement, he really had a very bleak experience in, in life that he didn't value anything and he didn't value the people that he killed. And, Starkweather was was you know glorified in by many many movies right so mm-hmm. um, then there's the uh, the one from um, from from Bundy that was saying that Bundy was actually kind of a funny guy you know but the, the one quote was just you know that he shouldn't have been convicted of anything more than running a cemetery without a license oh you mean Gacy. Yeah, Gacy. I'm sorry, Gacy. I said Bundy. I'm sorry, you're right, Gacy. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's just a funny quote, right? From a clown. Yeah. And didn't he say that to the cops, dude? Yeah, that's what he said Crazy. to the cops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Pretty. Pretty. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's some of these quotes, like you hear them at the face value, and it's like, huh, hey, that's kind of funny. And then you think about it a little more, and you're like, that's really disturbing. But at the same time, it's just fascinating. So it's kind of kind of hard to get away from but yeah you know i love the subject i love serial killer quotes and since we're on the subject of serial killer quotes let's go ahead and, uh would you mind throwing out the facebook and where people can buy the book ah sure uh so it's on facebook um it's uh facebook slash s k q o d uh, serial killer quote of the day, S-K-Q-O-D. And that's their, the Facebook um, page. Uh, on Amazon, if you just search for our Amazon um, 
you know, serial killer quote of the day. That book will come up. Right now it's in, in Kindle format, but we're expecting by the ending of this, but within the month it'll be out in paperback. And while we were talking, we shared your Facebook page on ours, so if everybody could go give them a like, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah, uh, Johnny, you were awesome. I really enjoyed it. Um, we'll bring you back sometime for sure, um, You know, definitely in uh, one of our serial killer shows, and we can just continue on with the uh, discussion. I really appreciated you... Uh, you know, you guys reaching out to us, and we really appreciate, you know, just having somebody with, uh, you know, the research and the fact that you've been able to collect all these quotes together to put together a really good book. And one more thing I wanted you to touch on. Talk about mm-hmm. one more thing, because I was reading the description, and it was something that I, I felt like needed to be touched on. It's not just quotes. I mean, you guys have more around it than just that, just the fun fact of the day. You've got the uh, the mug shots and things like that, too. Right. Yeah, well, you know, there's there's some, I don't know, simple information about them, you know, like the number of kills, what they're doing, what their nicknames are, and stuff like that. But, you know, we, we gathered a lot of fun facts, as we, what we call fun facts. And, you know, that you go, well, why would you ever have a fun fact about a serial killer? Because sometimes it's interesting, you know, you have... You know, you have a, a, a killer like um, uh, Andre um, Chipotillo, mm-hmm. who who is actually a, a teacher. You know, you wouldn't really think that. You know, that's a teacher. I'm a teacher. I'm going to teach children. But no, this is what he did. And, and so those are all kind of fun facts that that I you know that are really I don't know. I we we. We we painstakingly researched those because um, myself and uh, Brian Whitney also uh, was was involved in in in, um, in gathering some of those facts as well and and we found some very very interesting quotes or very very interesting fun facts for that so. Well, very cool. I think it's something that everybody needs to uh, pick up if you're a serial killer enthusiast. And God knows there's a lot of you listening to the show. That's, I mean, our biggest shows are the serial killer shows. So I know there's a lot of people who tuned in wanting to hear just more about Ronald Dominique. But, you know, obviously serial killers in general because we branch out every single time we do this. So, again, Johnny, you're the man. We'll have you back sometime. But you take care of yourself, okay, buddy? All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. And he he called it serial quote of the day, serial killer quote of the day. You know, go to our Facebook page and you'll find it. Find the Facebook page. You can find them on Amazon. You can find them on Kindle. All sorts of things. And you know what, Vic? That seems like the perfect thing for my desktop at work. You know, weird people out around me. It'll be good times. Yes, I agree with that one hundred percent. And I think I should uh, like get them and sell them at work. Put them up yeah. on the rest. That'd be yep. awesome, right? Yep, well, and you know that we're all about weirding people out. So, I like it. So, Vic, let's talk about what we've been watching since we've already talked about what's grinding my gears. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and jump in first. Of course, I watched Confession of Fred Krueger, which got me into a Wes Craven kick. R.I.P. Wes Craven. You guys can go back and listen to our tribute, which I thought was a really good tribute, by the way, a few weeks ago. Um, so I watched uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. I watched Scream, I watched Scream 2, I watched Scream 3, and I watched Wes Craven's New Nightmare. So that was my uh, 
run of uh, horror movies there, along with all the Ronald Dominique documentaries and information that I could find online as well. Well, I, I will say you watched a little bit more than me. <laughs> I know that don't surprise you at all. No. But I, I did watch the Confession of Fred Krueger because I did made it and I wanted to see what it was all about, and I loved it. But other than that, I worked. I was out of town for a little bit for work, so I didn't take my PS4 or, any, or my laptop or anything, so I didn't have any uh, good ways to watch stuff in my downtime, which wasn't very often anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I didn't watch anything. He couldn't do that. So I see uh, Mr. Gore has been a fumbler tonight. Yeah, yeah, it happens, man. He, he fumbled on the goal line. He hasn't done that since, like, his year. That's what happens when you go play for the Colts, I guess. Man, he's not used to playing inside because only pussies play football inside. Thank you. That's a good point. Um, that's, yeah, that's pussy shit. Like, it, why, 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 why are you inside? I mean, I don't get it. This is not arena football. Uh, Just mean, for the record. Plus, they're getting beat by the Jets, so I probably fumble too. <laughs> Dude, do you realize the Jets are probably going to be two and zero? How ridiculous is that? And the Colts are going to be on too. So I don't, I don't understand football. No, I don't understand. I'll tell you what's really weird is when you see somebody like uh, Tampa Bay who absolutely got slaughtered, beat the Saints yesterday, and somebody like the Titans who absolutely slaughtered them lose to the Browns. It just tells you football is a very confusing sport. It really is. Like, I just don't understand it. And me me and your brother were talking because we were at a B-Dubs watching, the, uh, watching all kinds of football yesterday and watching the 49ers get massacred. I was going to say, you don't want to mention the one you're actually watching? Well, I mean, because there's a bunch of TVs on, so I, I glanced I glan around. But anyway, <laughs> dickhead. Um, no, sorry. <laughs> I was watching the, the Pittsburgh Chainsaw Massacre. And, uh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, we're talking like how good? How good does that make New, New England? Because I mean, because we look good against the Vikings. Not great, but we look good. We we won, you know, pretty handily. And then they Pittsburgh slaughters us, and New England was never in doubt against Pittsburgh, and they murdered the Bills, who you know everybody thought they were going to be all good and shit, and give them a run for their money. No, New New England. Uh, Head and shoulders above everybody, I think, right now. Ooh, man, I don't know. I think the Packers are right there with them. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's my Super Bowl, and, I, and I'm going to hate it whenever it happens. But. It should have been last year. It should have been last year, and I think the Packers would have beat them. You know, because I, I think they should have beat the Seahawks, but the Cowboys got screwed against the Packers, so maybe it should have been the Cowboys there, and we both would have hated that. Yeah, well, I would have gone for the Patriots either way, just like I did anyway. But yeah, I will tell you this. I will tell you this. I will tell you this. There is a big difference between this year and last year. Yes, Jordy Nelson's gone, but Aaron Rodgers can actually move right now, and that that does make a difference. But you know, we. Uh, that being said, we'll we'll go ahead and move past the football subject just because. Vic, what do we have going on next week, buddy? Oh, what is next week? Oh, that's we're doing uh, some. Some top list. I know we're uh, we're doing our top five stream queens, not the uh, actresses themselves, but the actual characters. Correct, sir. 
Yeah, so if somebody likes like Lori Strode, she would be part of the list. You know, she could be one, two, three, or whatever. We're doing top five. You know, um, uh, I guess Survivor Girls is really the the term I would use, or you can use Final Girl if you prefer. Um, top five Stephen King movies, and then another top five that we had talked about for a long time. Top five horror movie masks, and I really think that three of them will be pretty obvious, but. Uh, a couple of them. We'll see who people have. Uh, I think we're going to bring on our buddy Jer to, uh, 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 you know, kind of come up with a list of his own. So it should be fun. I always like doing mm-hmm. our list shows, and we haven't done one on on this show since uh, yeah, we right. did the top ten horror uh, summer horror movies last year, which was our very first episode. And aren't we also doing a top ten horror actors? Uh yes, uh that's that's actually a YouTube thing we're gonna do. YouTube, okay, I I couldn't remember. We got so much shit going on. I don't know what's happening anywhere. Yep, and, and so yeah, uh, if you guys are uh, pay attention to our YouTube, it will be updated in early October because we're gonna be uh doing trick or treat and a nice little thirteen. Uh, top 13 horror movie actors. And Vic, that was a harder list than you would think, for me, anyway. Because, you yeah. know, I go back to, like, the 50s and stuff, even it's before that. Just crazy talk. Like, I, I got my top five. I haven't uh, really thought about it too much. But my top five actually came to me uh, fairly easy. I had to bump some people that you would be like, wow, you had to bump them. Yep, sure did. Andrew Luck, sorry, I got to go back. It is 12 of 26 for 120 yards, two picks, and a fumble. So is he really that much better than Robert Griffiths the third now? <laughs> no, he's horrible. He's horrible. Uh, but so is Russell Wilson. So who's the best quarterback in that class now? I don't, I... <laughs> Russell Wilson has the Super Bowl. We don't have to worry. You know, it's not even a debate. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's just horrible. That, yeah, horrible. Anyway, sorry. Had to get back on the quarterbacks, but. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we got some YouTube videos coming up. We got uh, what what's going on for the month of October uh, on this show? Well, we have a lot of guests lined up, but I don't want to release them yet because I want to confirm them all again. You know, because it's been yeah. a while since I talked to any of them. So let me confirm them all. But I will tell you that there's a lot of names from movies like Halloween Five, Insidious, floating around that I'm trying to uh, firm up. So hopefully I can do that, and hopefully uh. My new baby doesn't come on any one of our show dates, so we can actually do those shows. Yeah, we we don't need the 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 little Desmond popping up on a on on a Monday. You can come. Yeah, Wednesday day. would be better. Yeah, make sure you make sure you talk to her. Let her know that's not a Monday. Yeah, I need to communicate that. Maybe I'll yeah. have Isla. I'll have Isla do it. She'll go Dado. That's what she says. <laughs> Dado. <laughs> That's awesome. Dude, you yeah. would have loved it. You know what she was doing yesterday? I swear to God, I didn't show her this. She just did it on her own. She's walking around with um this fake kitchen knife, okay? This little kid's kitchen knife, you know, because she's got, like, one of those, uh, like, I don't know, kitchen sets and, and with the food and everything. She's walking around her bedroom, and she's, like, doing it like Michael Myers, like she's stabbing somebody. <laughs> I was laughing my ass off. I love it. I love it. Yep. She's a little nut. So, anyway, yeah. So, next week, top five list. Three of them we're going to put out. It'll be good times. Uh, Vix will be insane, I'm sure. 
but at least some of them. But the Stephen King list will be interesting. Uh, by the way, let me just clarify the Stephen King list. Don't try to fucking bring up Green Mile, Stand By Me, or uh, or Shawshank Redemption. Top five Stephen King horror movies. I should well, I should make sure I, people I, know. I got to throw out three of my top five already. Sorry. Because <laughs> they're too easy, you know? They got to be. I mean, because they're such good movies. They have to be, like, kicked out. Oh yeah, no doubt about it. They're just—I mean, because like—I mean, realistically, they're—they're they're the only ones of the bunch that are like so good a movie. So now, I, I should clarify: they—they they should be horror movies. So otherwise, it's not really fair. But if, uh, if, our, if our number ones differ, then you're wrong. But I'm put—I'm going to put that out there for you. Would you say? If our number ones are not the same number ones, then you are wrong. No, nah, they'll be the same. Uh, I'm sure of it. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I bet you it's the same. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah, we sure will. That's what I love about this show is because we might be cussing each other or we might be getting along. We'll find out, won't we? Yes, sir. We damn sure had the same top ten summer or number one top ten horror summer movies um, and then also the same Halloween movie outside of the Halloween series. So we'll see what we got here. But uh, in the meantime, uh, make sure you guys go to travandvichorror.wordpress.com. Vote on the real-life monster you want us to talk about October 26th. It ends October 3rd, which is not long off. And, Vic, uh, I'm done for the night, so if you want to go ahead and wrap it up, go for it, man. All right, brother. You have a good one, man. Later on. Later. All right, everybody. That was our show. I hope you enjoyed uh, the Ronald Dominique talk. Because I mean, Ronald Dominique is fucking awesome. If you don't know anything about him, go listen, go look him up, go watch the documentary. Dude's legit. <clears throat> but uh, other than that, you can follow us on Twitter at TravisVicHor. Emails at TMVHor@gmail.com. Uh, find us on Instagram, Tumblr, all that other bullshit. TravisVicHor. Give us a like on Facebook, Travis and Vic Drunken Horror Adventures. We are on YouTube where all the uh, the shit that we're not allowed to do on the podcast is broadcast. We get a little too drunk and, yeah, it, it gets a little wild on there. So go watch those videos, get them up. And other than that, we will catch you next week. Later. This episode is made possible by PwC. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. At PwC, we pair the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. That's human-led and tech-powered. It's all part of the new equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com.